Yeah. All right. So, okay. Well, welcome everybody. Welcome to Parallax Academy. We used to be called Parallax Sangha, but we've rebranded our our thing uh, this week. So we're now Parallax Academy, and uh, which just means a few changes in, in what we do. So so check out our website and maybe join our our merry band of pranksters. Um, I'm here with Alexander Bard, Layman Pascal, Alexander, who likes to be referred to as Camille Pagli with a penis, and Layman Pascal, who likes to be referred to as some guy on the internet. These are the, the two people who I think are, you know, some of the brightest minds, some of the most explosive verbi verbal um, geniuses out there. And so, so, and I don't know if we've done a trilogue together yet. I, I don't think so, but I, I'm really excited for this. So welcome, you guys. Maybe we could just start by hearing about what, what you're up to. Lehman was telling us a bit of some of his various projects, and, and Alexander was as well, before we get on to the main topic. How about that? None of mine are as exciting as naked fishing. But mm -hmm. I'm uh, uh, running the Emerge website, still doing the integral stage, still doing my sub stack. I'm getting ready to be in Greg Henrique's Consilience Conference. Uh, then I'll be doing a course on Parallax in April about uh, gender and metamodern spirituality. And then I'll be running the metamodern spirituality retreat in May. And I'm also working towards uh, helping set up the Emerge Toronto event in September. Cool. How about you, Alexander? That was the first time I heard about the Emerge event in Toronto in September. Wow. I, I, I would love to sneak in there. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. We should crash it. Like we you know, exactly. Well, I got a book coming out as well, you know, so we'll talk about it later. Anyway, uh, I delivered Process and Event, the most talked about book ever not to be released yet. I delivered it. We also had a kiss to the publishers two weeks ago. And uh, it's just some silly proofreading done and setting the book. Could be out by end of May, hopefully. If not, then it's early fall. But it's finally done. The big one. Uh, and I intend to make the rest of my philosophical career nothing but commentary on the six books I've written, especially the last three. So Synthesis and Digital Libido, Prostavet will be completed. It will be called The Grand Narratology, all three books together. The first one is about the future. The second one about the predictable state we're in right now. And, uh, and, and then the third one is, of course, a whole a rewriting of the entire history of ideas, which is, of course, where, where tonight's conversation is coming into the picture. So um, I'll, I'll probably refer quite a lot to Prost and Event during this conversation. Glad to be here with Layman. And by the way, you're so well-dressed tonight. You look so hot. Thank Layman. you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. This is a tantric date from now on, right there. <laughs> and glad to be here with Andrew and Owen, as usual. Quality stands strong at Parallax Academy. Um, besides that, I'm doing politics with this new political party in Sweden, MED. Um, I'm doing uh, men's work. I'm also starting a new course uh, this fall at Björnbacke called Capitalism and Spirituality, much needed in, in, in within capitalism itself. Uh, we've got a lot of heavyweights involved, like Fanny Norlin, who's also, by the way, joining me at the Greg Henriquez Conference in, in March. Um, Tom Nixon and Pontus uh, Holmgren are also involved in that project. So I'm taking my work at the Stockholm School of Economics, which is very professional about how you make money, run a business, manager, leader, and I'm taking all the spiritual work out of there and putting it into another institution because these, these things should definitely be separated. We should never allow religion and commercialism to be one of the same thing, which is one thing I will return to tonight. So that's about where I'm at. 
Okay, well, let's get started on our topic, which is, you know, which was early religion. You both approached me or Alexander approached me saying that you wanted to have a conversation with layman about, let's say, primordial religion or, or shamanism or early religion. And so where do you want Where do you guys want to go with that? What's but let me just rephrase that. There's no starting point for religion because there's nothing pre-religious. Human beings are religious, period. Everything is religion. Everything about human beings is religion. Political ideology is religion. Capitalism is a religion. Nationalism is a religion. Everything you do is a religion. Rather, I would like to phrase it like, to start from the point of religion is for men and spirituality is for women. And maybe start with something like that because religion and spirituality have always existed for as long as we've been humans. I mean, that was like the first thing we did before we even started talking or anything like that. We would be to be religious and have religious beliefs or whatever. So I would, I would say there's no starting point for religion. That, that's a big mistake because there's not, nothing pre-religious in human beings. All right. So we start off in perhaps a little bit controversial. Religions for men and, and spiritualities for women. Um, what do you feel about that statement, Layman? And, and Oh, that's not how I frame it. I usually think of uh, spirituality as individual and religion as interpersonal. And those are analogs of the same kind of structural process. I agree completely that it's got no starting point. As long as you've got functional human beings, they're doing religion. Uh, so when we talk about the you know, primal religion, we're talking about the religion of the nomadic peoples and of the transition into urban recorded historical religion, which is a very interesting period especially when there's so many people in our communities who are thinking about, uh, like John Verveke speaks about the religion that's not a religion, which of course you could just call religion. I'm very interested in the tradition before the traditions. I'm interested in what it does to us to think of the last 6,000 years as recent, as full of newfangled fads like Islam and Christianity and Buddhism. And I think the the optimistic dialogues you find in the contemporary transformational communities have a lot to learn from like artistically combining new archaeological data with our ancestral longings and our imaginal storytelling and our inner phenomenology and combining the various fragments of, let's say, primal psychotechnologies that we find scattered in the different esoteric cultures. Uh, there's something in all of that that's often left out of the integral and metamodern and game B kinds of discussions. I'm just indicating that I'm interested in how religion and spirituality look at the different phases of the transition from nomadic to urban, from preliterate to literate, from the, you know, the cyclic ecological eternity to the rupture of historical progress. I'm sure Alexander has a lot to say about that. But I think we have the possibility tonight to speak directly to upcoming generations of integrationists and metamodernists and Bildung people and meta theorists and tell them that they're not putting enough attention on some of these things. They're not focused on tribe and ecology and ritual and shamanism and esoteric membranes and symbolism and the subconscious and death and the way the majority of human religion has been conducted. Uh, and because they're leaving that out, they're getting some false and skewed results in their attempt to bring forth something that's capable of being religion in our own era. Mm -hmm. I would add to that the, the you know, I'm a paradigmatic philosopher. So uh, what we talk about here, we talk about organized religion, Christianity and Islam are basically feudal constructions that were incredibly successful because they kept the feudal society together. So say you, you make people work really, really hard for you as slaves, more or less, six days a week. And then on the seventh day, they're told they're gonna go to heaven when they die, and they're gonna go to heaven before you, and who cares? You don't. You know heaven doesn't exist. 
This is the best payoff you could possibly have. You don't have to pay people to go to church on a Sunday, believe they're going to go to heaven when they die and therefore work for you. And this is exactly why slavery was intensely tied to Islamic Christianity. That's their entire history, basically. And, and you go from slave to child of God. There's not even a journey towards adulthood involved here. You, you, you know, the degrading thing Christianity and Islam is that you cannot best only be a child of God. You cannot be anything more than that. So, but, but you know, I, it, it, you can tell I don't hold, hold these religions in very high regard because they're neither primordial, which would make them interesting. And they're certainly not valuable any longer for the, the world we live in today. So the internet society, would have to rethink religion and reform it. That's all you can do. There's just religion and the reformed versions of religion. And the successful reformed versions, either qualitatively successful or quantitatively successful, meaning they're popular, are reformed according to a paradigm. So where do we start from? My suggestion is that I've taken the word nomadology from Jill Deleuze and totally redefined it. John Sodeclist and I decided the nomadology is basically the religion of the original nomadic tribe. You're in constant movement. This goes on for hundreds of thousands of years. You have no archaeological evidence left anywhere in the world for what nomadic life would have looked like because they literally were on the move constantly. So they never left anything. You know, the, 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 except for the tundra, it's impossible to find a single archaeological trace left. However, the other place to look for an archaeology is in ourselves, in our own gene plex, our own genes. And this precisely where human beings were shaped. So the proper way to conduct an archeology span of the nomadic religion is to go to the gene plex of human beings and look at human behavior, which we can do today. We can pick up the data today, which is what I do in my work from all different parts of the world, New Guinea, China, Greenland, Sweden, Brazil, whatever. And as soon as you discover, you see a pattern that returns in all populations. You're probably getting close to what we call the sociont. The sociont is the name here, sociontology, the start of the original nomadic tribe. So the sociont is the name for the original nomadic tribe. Now, what did the sociont look like? What kind of beliefs did it have? What, 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 what were the motives involved? How did Darwinian evolution shape the sociont did what it is? And we're all survivors from the sociont, which is a good story. You know? We're all here with our different gene plexes because our different gene plexes, our archetypes, fit in with a certain pattern. That's archetypology. So suddenly discovering deep psychology and discovering the patterns of human beings is discovering the original religion. Of course they're tied together. And here's the thing. You then discover that 92% of the population are regular Joes and Jills. Straight, you know, have no ideas of anything else. You know, they, they're not very imaginative. They, they're, just, they're just the guys who fucking breed and then live as, you know, as well as they can, you know, take care of the kids. The regular population, 92%, need to be contained within a religion. The women within an inner circuit, the men within an outer circuit. The outer circuit are warriors and traders and, and you know, hunters and stuff. The inner circuit, of course, women generally, which is they're all part of a reproduction mechanism. This is where transcendence comes into the picture applied to women. It's just like women give birth to children. That's like half the job of the tribe. And then be on the move with the children and make them survive until the next stop. So everything here is like, what would be the first problem? This is the interesting question. What would be the first problem? If you were running a sociant, what would be the first problem you'd have to address? Containing sexuality, right? You can't have people fucking and being women, being pregnant constantly all the time. You're going to go through hardship throughout the year. You're going to go to better places throughout the year. You're going to go through summer climbs. You're going to go through winter climbs or whatever. You have to figure out over the seasons, 
when you multiply best. And the best thing is that for as many of the women who give birth to give birth at about the same time, which happens to be March, for example, in the Northern Hemisphere. So you have a big ritual at, well, midsummer. Pagan religion starts right there. And then you can sort of develop all the different ideas that were part of nomadological religion. But here's the catch. You must never ever, when you try to trace nomadological religion, you must never ever for one moment think that these people were ever settled. You have to remember that permanent settlement changed everything forever 10,000 years ago. You have to remember these people have no idea what that means. None of them. It's all about get up in the morning and walk. And if you're behind the oldest woman in the tribe, you're dead. That's a first commandment for everybody in the tribe. Children, women, men, grown-ups, older, elders, whatever. If you're behind the matriarch, we move tomorrow, you're dead. You better follow the priest and the chieftain at the front. And between priest, chieftain, matriarch, ultimate leadership, totally authoritarian, never to be questioned. That's what a nomadological religion would have to look like. So that's, that's a good starting point, I think. But remember, no events, no happenings, no development of civilization, no permanent settlement, no accumulation of value, none of that. You have to keep that out before you can really understand nomadology. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah, just I a couple of things. really interesting phase. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, between those two is really intriguing to me, right? So there's, it's not just we suddenly are urban captured. There's a long period of time in which some of the nomadic peoples, essentially esoteric agents and little networks are inventing civilization and people are moving in and out of the cities, sometimes abandoning them, sometimes going back. That's a very fertile and interesting transition period. And to me, the, the religious forms there are perhaps more interesting than either the urban historical eventology or the basic nomadic cyclic. Yeah, okay. But the thing is, that these are the other 8% that are so important in paradigmatic shifts, especially when it comes to religious reform. So this trick, about 4% of the population androgynous, go between between men and women, gays and lesbians, essentially. Another 4% of any population we study are shamanoid. And here's the thing with the shamanoids. They go between tribes. And I've seen this live in New Guinea, Brazilian jungle. No, not everybody kills everybody when two tribes go to war with each other. you got some fucking guys in weird costumes looking like Lehman Pascal who walk in between the tribes and nobody <laughs> would dare to hurt them, right? Go-betweens. The go-betweens is shamanoid. Now, if you are the go-between with other tribes, if the only guy could talk to strangers, you got a pretty good monopoly here, don't you? you got a monopoly on all connect communication with the outside world. That's not only strangers. That's gods, that's demons, that's forefathers. That's like everything we build religion from. So all the components you build religion from are a monopoly of a small minority of people called shamanoids. These shamans live in between tribes. And this exact anthropology started thinking that religion must start with a great, uh, you know, ecstatic experience or, you know, herophony or something like that. Well, that's what shamans did all the time. And if they didn't do it, they at least pretended they were doing it. Because it's nowhere ever do you have anybody who speaks directly to God. Nowhere ever. You go to see the shaman and the shaman talks to the gods on your behalf. That's what shamanic exercise is all about, shamanic ritual. And of course, that's key to religion. It's key to religion all the way through. The only problem being that once we get settled, we bring the shamans into the tribe, put on some robes and then call them priests. And of course, they become pretty corrupt after time, 
tend to be pretty boring. And therefore they organize religion in a way that keeps a permanent settled society together, which explains the feudal religions. What we thrive, you know, what we're on fire about today is the rediscovering the art of shamanism and, and then see how, how, how close to dare we go today with our fucking drugs and tantric sex and everything we want to do today to sort of explore what shamans did because shamans died young. They, they, they were the original rock stars. They took risks like nobody else. That's exactly why they were credible. And I think that's important. That's the second component of the original religion is, is shamanism. Yeah, I think it's really important to look at the relationship between um, what the shamans are doing within themselves and what they're doing with the rest of the community at each of those different phases or circumstances. So they're doing one thing in terms of inner practice and organizing the tribe ritually, uh, prescriptions, sexuality, all that kind of stuff. In the nomadic situation, they're doing another thing in the transitional period, and they're doing another thing once they enter into the historical progress of urban settled development. And we can recreate that to some degree by looking at the archaeological remains but there's a lot of information we're never going to have we can also look at how we are activated by spending time with some of the monolithic and circumstantial things that are left over like if you were to just hang out in gobekli tepe by yourself for a couple of weeks you get some sense of what they're doing but likewise if you spend time with people in wilderness circumstances similar to what the nomadic people were doing you re-evoke some of those things in yourself and then you can also use that information to look for things that are mimetically left over within the religious traditions and see how those would be connected back to source point cultures. You see the pattern along the Silk Road, for example. What happens is you get the cost talks. So you got you come to a small oasis town and you're tired and you've got to do trade tomorrow morning and then you got to move on, right, to survive. What you do is that you find there's a hospice. And there's a whorehouse, uh, which is the nightclub, you know, most languages. Uh, there's a gym of some kind to stretch and things and get to know people. Definitely bathhouse, you know, social places to get into the community enough. So you're credible enough to get a license to actually trade at the bazaar, which you then do. Then after you trade at the bazaar, this is the funny thing. After the bazaar is always a kastak, a spiritual house. You clearly go to the spiritual house to clean your soul, clean your mind from destructive thinking, you know, especially if you've done bad deals in the bazaar, because you've got to fix yourself, get yourself together, go to the next town with a smile on your face and sell more snake oil or whatever, you know. So the castocks were originally built along the trade routes and they were everywhere. And these are the be beginnings of cloisters later in Latin and, and, of course, monasterial culture. Here's the funny thing, though. The castocks get so big and so popular, you got to educate monks and nuns to take care of business in the castocks. Where do you put those places? How do you make them credible? Oh, you put them on the top of mountains. Why? Wilderness. That's where the shamans are supposed to live. So you put them on top of mountains. That's exactly what Tibetan Buddhism is so damn sophisticated. All the Tibet population was it's such a small part of Asia because you put these places in the mountains of, say, Persia and Tibet. And there you develop the first monasterial cultures. And that precisely speaks volumes archaeologically about where the shaman would live. The shame would live in between communities, preferably if there's one community in this valley, there's another community in that valley. If you get connected, you'll probably go to war with each other. So why don't we just put a monastery with some funny guys in between the two valleys? And those funny guys there can then sort things out so we can avoid warfare and things. That explains what shamans are doing. And of course, next, monastery on the mountain, the closer to God you are, the more credibility you get. 
So the, this, this is just common sense when applied onto archaeology. And of course, with an, especially nomadic cultures that are still nomadic, like trade routes, we see exactly the patterns of what a nomadic tribe would have looked like as well. Quebec and Tepe are endlessly fascinating, being a semi-nomadic phenomenon. Hmm. Well, one of the other things I would bring in are the kinds of experiences that those people were having that could be used as psychotechnologies. Right. So we know they're encountering vegetation that can change their consciousness, but they're also undergoing, you know, uh, Rajneesh got famous in India for criticizing Gandhi and talking about sex. Right. He said sex was the origin of meditation because you have energized focus, you have a peak experience, and then you have a post climatic sort of unmotivated, empty state of consciousness. So he's right, but he's not completely right. There were lots of different conditions that would be going on in natural living situations that would produce these modifications of consciousness, whether you're um, watching for prey, watching for predators, uh, whether you're undergoing some kind of physical ordeal. There's all these moments. Um, Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching says, no one remembers how the ancient sages were. So I will tell you. So Lao Tzu thought these were ancient sages. He says they were like people crossing a frozen river who didn't know how thick the ice was. Right? That was their meditation. It was a kind of alertness or an awareness that was embedded within the practicalities of their lifestyle and within their ecological circumstances. But the shamans were learning how to take things that everyone was experiencing and turn some of those things into inner tools that they could practice a lot. Yeah, we have a very fresh example of the death of Fallas in a traditional sense. 1945, Hitler and Stalin were now in hindsight clearly false fallacies but the credibility with phallic power was completely destroyed. Women had entered the workforce. Men got softer and, you know, you know, whatever. What happened was we got some really funny characters that became the ideals of the 20th century. The rock star, the movie star, you know, they're shamanic types. Now, I would strongly advise a culture not to use shamans as idols for regular guys. Okay, you're not supposed to take tons of drugs and fuck anything that moves and kill yourself when you're 28. Michael Hutchins is not a good role model for kids. But that's what we got in the 20th century. And with the hippies in the 1960s, social experimentation, mass scale, you know, putting LSD and drinking water or whatever, rather than keeping these traditions or whatever they were with the shamans themselves, I think the most important thing for the shaman is to take tons of drugs and then tell people what it was like. Not to give drugs to people. <laughs> that's a terrible mistake. No, lock up the fucking drugs, the tantric. Take the drugs, then tell them what it's like and overdo whatever. Give them a fairy story and they will believe what you say because next you will tell them what they need to do with their lives. That's the trick of being shamanic. It's a theatrical, performative thing. It's not an inner experience because you take a drug, right? So I think, I think we can study the 20th century carefully now, looking back over the last 80 years and then say, how the hell did Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix and these guys become such iconic figures? Well, because they're shamanic. That also means the chieftains and the priests were gone. And we had nothing but shamans for a period of 80 years. I think that's why we're also confused at the moment. But it's a very interesting period to study, to study shamanism. It's actually very public to us over the last 80 years. It is rock and roll. You know, it's, it's all that, that, that entire pop culture has been obsessed with the shamanic over the last 80 years. So I'm thinking here I about... I think it's really interesting. Go ahead. Just, there's, there's two things about religion. There's the ecstatic experiences you know that it provides people or and then there are then are then there's the ethical mores and behaviors and ways to act and we've talked about 
the division between uh, sutra and tantra in many ways. Uh, I, I, what I'm wondering is like, okay, is this built into the early shamanic cultures already? And now we kind of lose it when we move into modernity. No, uh, no, like we, we, we do not have mass, massive uh, ecstatic experiences among people. That, that's what guys like Adolf Hitler playing to, Nuremberg. I mean, I think Thomas Hammerick could join the conversation right here, point on Shiraz, incredibly important work. You do not want to spread ecstasy among the people. That's a major mistake. The ecstatic experience is for those who live in the laboratory called the monastery or some closed environment, which is tantric. It's for them to experience it, to then retell the story, to attain a certain status and power that comes with having had really intense experiences. Well, that's what that's I'm saying. That I'm, I'm saying that so, so, that we've so maybe forgotten what, that aspect of the of the tantric in, when 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 the culture when it, we have this global shamanism or something that's kind no, of no. We, we've and, we've had so um, many drugs out there and so much sex out of the last ten years. We haven't forgotten anything at all. We've overdone it. We spread it to too many people. Why we have a Sheradian revolution right now is because we have to rethink what actually what we're doing. I, I, I did a political speech here in Sweden yesterday. I said, no, I do not want the drugs floating freely in society. I want psychedelic retreats with professionals to carry these incredibly potent molecules. Otherwise, people blow their brains out, you know, especially young kids. The, 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 the thing with the tantric is that the tantric is that instead of saying sin at everything that's fun, you say, okay, all the things that are fun but are dangerous need to be locked up and handled with care. You have to be at a certain state, incredibly, you have to be incredibly adult to begin with, to then become a sage possibly. And then if you have the right talents and qualifications, you will be invited to walk into the tantric realm to experience the tantric sex, the tantric drugs, and even the tantric psychoanalysis. The ultimate journey towards truth is the search for the ecstatic experience. And of course, if you've done the ecstatic experience, you can also handle people's trauma because trauma is just exact reflection of ecstasy. You treat people exactly the same way. To take down a kick seeker from an ecstasy is exactly the same work as to pick somebody up from a trauma. Traumatology and eventology are parallels. And you discover that's exactly, you're never a shaman because you did ecstatic experiences. The last thing they will do before you become a shaman is to put you in hell, asking to be killed for hours, you're screaming. You're saying, you cannot be shaman unless you've been there. You, you haven't done, you haven't, you haven't, you haven't visited all the different strangers you're supposed to know before you have the credibility to talk to people. Yeah. It reminds yeah, me the of credibility the Bardos, important the Bardos are... because it's it's a wisdom and a skill set and an understanding of how to use these experiences. It's not the fact of these experiences, right? So that's been constant throughout the human period. And so the people who are having the experiences and are good at them and develop some maturity together about them can then make decisions about which aspects of those might be useful to people outside that at different times, right? Maybe somebody needs to go on a healing journey and the shaman can decide to some degree, this person is going to take this drug at this time. You don't release it freely to those people. And one of those things you touched on the idea that the patriarchs and the matriarchs are lacking. So we turn to the shamans in a big way, right? I think we see that all over in modern society is there's no credible, normal social authority. So people turn to shamans when they don't need to turn to shamans, right? If you had reliable presidents, you don't need to have clowns do that job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're kind of in the age of the clowns <laughs> on some level, it would seem. Yeah, you know, the shaman inside the tribe is a bit of a clown. Yeah, at best a trickster, right? 
Yeah. There's a point to why we go out in the wilderness to see the shaman, because that's the shaman's territory. Why? Because it's in between tribes and you get killed very easily. And the one thing shamans can tell you, they're not afraid of dying. They don't believe in themselves. I mean, you cannot be narcissistic and a shaman. <laughs> that's, that's why the vast majority of spirituality gurus are not doing anything remotely close to shamanism. Rather, the shaman takes the biggest risks you could possibly imagine with their mind, their body, with everything. They just go ahead and experiment with themselves wildly. But when they talk to you, they immediately turn over to you and where you're at and what you need to be a good father or three or whatever you're supposed to be. That's where priesthood comes into the picture. Priesthood then even more outsources the ecstatic out there. What you do, you build a huge temple. All the major first constructions in any civilization are temples. You know, vast majority of civilizations, because there's nothing but temples for the first thousands of years. The, the, the temple is the number one building you build to house the priest. And then, of course, the temple is built to be impressive. Again, shamanic performance. It's very theatrical. This is a guy who has no problem all putting on all the feathers and the robes and the gold you could possibly have. And they go out in front of everybody and perform. Now, what is required, though, for a sophisticated religion, lacking Christianity and Islam, but dominant in Buddhism, Judaism, and Zoroastrianism, my favorites, is of course a bard absolute. And the bard absolute is that for you to be performing and do really well as a priest, which is a shaman in the robe, you gotta have your own religion. There has to be an inner religion, a religion which is the incessant pursuit of truth no matter what. If God is dead, you believe God is dead, okay? That's not to be talked about. Your religion, the religion you preach, it's not hypocritical. It's the religion people need. Religion is not, religion is not, a, it's not a game between different alternatives. So I believe in that, I believe in that. It's a ridiculous assumption. Religion is what society needs as a glue to be kept together. If religion isn't there, society falls apart into anarchy and lynch mobbing and it's over. The only way to keep a society together, even a small tribe, is through religion. So the storytelling with religion and the performative part of religion and the rituals of religion are all about keeping community together. Now, then what you do when you're the priest in the temple is that you realize you, you got to believe in something as well. Somebody got to talk to God on your behalf as well. That's got to be you and the other priests. And that's exactly when the Jewish religion inside the sacred room, the most sacred room, you know, we have all the gold and the ark and everything. Inside that, there's another secret sacred room, an even more sacred room, which only the high priest can attend once a year. Obviously, it's, it's, it's just dark room. It's just empty. There's no God there. God is exactly the relation between those two rooms. And the priest must know this. In, in Zoroastrianism, which I, of course, studied intensely, it's called Zoroastrianism. And, and Zoroastrianism is the religion was never written down for the priests themselves. And it's just, there's only one God. That God is time. Time is a merciless beast, has no gender, doesn't care about humans at all, which exactly what you as priests must go back to people and care about them. The love and care you show towards humanity is God's love. You must personify God's love. That's where God resides. And I think this is... Any religion you go into deep studies, you discover, yeah, of course, this is the pattern everywhere. That's why I don't believe there are religions. There's just religion and possibly reformed versions of religion, like shift from shamanism to priest and permanent settlement. Very small adjustments, cross paradigms, that's it. Everything else is just religion. I like the idea of the two rooms, and it's the relationship between the two rooms. That's 
That's very good. God is always in a relation. Like everything yeah. else, we are in relations all the time. Everything is relations. Everything, as soon as you've accepted a monist worldview, that everything is related to everything else. Please note what I just said. The point is not that it's, they're all tied together, that there's a one here. The point is that everything is related to everything else. Meaning what is related are relations themselves. So what could God possibly be except relations? That's why you marry people. They go to priests, mm -hmm. tie them together. And, and the way you do it in Zoroastrianism is through the barsam. The barsam is basically how you tie plants or whatever together, ropes together, that are so tight that nothing can get through them, right? This is this is the this is the description of the the brotherly bond that ties a community together. The, 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 the barsam, the, the barsam is, as they say, the person say, the barsam is the backbone of the anjima. So the barsam, the tying of the ropes together of, of our, our mentality, the relations tied together in a really, really strong one thing is the backbone of the entire community. Hmm. That's, Zoroastrianism that's totally religious. Is very that's what religion is. They're Zoroaster is sort of rehabilitating civilization at the beginning of civilization, because one of the things you see is, like you mentioned earlier, it's so easy for the shamanic caste to become corrupt once it tries to migrate to the unnatural situation of the city. Right. And everybody actually can become corrupted and degenerate when they attempt to make that adaptation. So at first, you're going to have many variations of just totally degenerate forms of cities breaking down, becoming warlike, uh, becoming polluted, all these kinds of things. But meanwhile, there's an interaction between the newly established cities and the ongoing nomadic lineages, and they're producing uh, visionary sages who start to see how to bring shamanic wisdom forward in the form of civilization, which means how do the shamans work within civilization, but also what rules, what prescriptions, what rituals do we give everyone else in order that the civilization starts to function in a healthy way rather than just constantly collapse due to its unnatural new circumstance. Sorasta was a direct consequence of the arrival of written language. His entire genius lies there. And the rest of his genius is actually something we attribute to him because it was so uncorrupted with what happened afterwards. The great thing with reading a thinker prior to the axial age and all the sort of pompous pillar saints that arrived later in history is that he, he warns us about guys that sit in the forest and think too highly of themselves without serving the community. The gospel says that anybody who doesn't serve the community is an asshole. <laughs> brilliant principle. It's a brilliant principle. If you don't have an archetype that serves community, who the fuck do you think you are? He's just like, that's that's a good starting point for religion. He's just like, find your fucking archetype and better serve the community because that's what this is all about. It's not about you going out being high in the forest. No. It's about you returning to the community within your archetype, being proud of the service you're giving to the community. Yeah. That might be thought of as somebody is speaking there. That might be thought of as bhakti yogi, right? Bhakti yoga is service, right? We talk. We talked the other day about karma yoga and uh, jhana yoga and, and bhakti yoga, and so I think those are three fundamental principles of religion and service, and they all have to be there. They're like three pillars, and some people excel yeah, in different areas. Like some people are more devotional by nature; others are more, you know philosophical and, and others are, are workers but well we have we have three brains yeah we, we have a rational brain we have an emotional brain we have a mimetic brain that's Girardinism for you 
So we have three brains. The mimetic brain tends to be a little stronger among women than men. That's exactly why women and gay guys are better at social relations because they spend an awful lot of time calculating social relations. Good. They're good at it. They have to be because they're going to live very densely with tons of kids around them and they better survive, right? Uh, men have stronger rational and emotional brains. So it's not like we're smarter. We just need more brain capacity to handle stronger emotions than women have. Women are always cooler than men. They pretend to be emotional. Men are emotional. And this struggle between the logos and the pathos defines masculinity. So you have the three brains. What's perfect with the yoga traditions is that they precisely reflect that. The karma yoga, interesting love, is mimetic brain. So karma is not about your actions or, or, you, or you do in your life. Karma is about what the community does or the community is heading and how the community can move from point A to point B and surviving. That's exactly what karma yoga means. Karma means how the actions of the community determine where the community ends up. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a communal causality. That's, Karma has nothing to do with American individualism, please. It's, it's just everything to do with community survival. But it's so all three of the, uh, the, the all three of them are about community on some fundamental level. Okay, just... yeah, yeah, of course they are. The yoga, yeah. karma yoga is mimetic brain. So mimetic brain. That's how women are better at and trust women to be matriarch is the symbol of karma yoga. So the other two, the bhakti yoga. That's pathos. That's what we need to do with men with our feelings. We need to find something to submit to, to push those feelings and that energy into something we're on fire about. Our lives are meaningless without a shared project with our brothers. That is what bhakti yoga means. Submission. That's what it means. You've got to submit. And if you haven't submitted by the day you're 90 years old, we'll make sure we got an old woman in the tribe who makes sure you submit. We put some fucking boga inside of you, kick your fucking brains out, your ego shrinks to nothing. And then the woman, then the old woman tells her, you're nothing without me. You know, who do you think you are? You're 19, you're nothing, right? That's bhakti yoga. And the third one, Jenin yoga, is of course the rational brain. How do you train your rational brain to not think it's the only brain, which is autism? How do you think, how do you train it to serve the other two? To rationalize whatever operation around you, you know, mathematical calculations. So, you know, bring in the harvest, uh, kill, you know, everything you do, especially men have to do like hunting and warfare needs a really strong rational brain as well. And you've got the three yogas. It's perfect. It's wonderful. Yeah. And then there's the fourth that's, that's way. That's needed which is by the shamanic class as well as by the general population, right? Like um, yeah. you have to have the people who are undergoing shamanoid experimentation able to be of service and able to access emotionally stable coherent conditions they have to have some kind of mental control and they have to be oriented towards service now those are principles that are also applicable to the general population so one yeah. of the things you get over time is the refinement of a set of let's say dharma principles which can be applied to both the general population and to the shamans in a way that makes both of them function better as a team the shamanoid brain mm -hmm. is a mix between all three brains it's mm. like a dialectical deadlock between the three. That's exactly the way it understands both men and women. Well, well, and, the, and the way it expresses, for example, in sexuality is most shamanon people don't have a sexual orientation. They don't even get it. So it's like, I, yeah. I don't care I, what I fuck with. What? What's the problem, right? That playfulness, for example, I give you a concrete example in psychoanalysis. To find, um, uh, to find patterns for shamanoid personalities, because you, you, you want to tell people they're shamanoid or transsexual or whatever, right? So what you do is that you look for patterns. And it turns out that regular children have a child sexuality period between they're like four and seven years old at most. You know, 
Freud discovered that, wrote a lot about child sexuality, playing doctor, whatever. Then you're just out of the out of the game entirely, totally not interested. The latent period is between six and eleven for girls and six and twelve for boys. Except for the shamanod. One way you discover shamanod personality is that they can't recall that there was ever a border between child sexuality and adult sexuality. They can't remember when their dick grew and when they came first. They don't remember. This is fluid. You know, that's that's their sexuality. It doesn't have any borders. That, that's how you discover shaman of personality. Perfect example of discovering it. And of course, the risk takers like that and all that goes with it. And I would say that with the three brains, the shamanoid brain in itself is a brain of all the other three at, at the same time. And it can't really make up its mind which one of the three it is. So it can be very confusing for people outside of, you know, when he's trying to communicate whatever he's saying, oracle-like, but it works. Well, I hate to oh, say that's this, ideally but, why but it the, needs a certain kind of, yeah, you go ahead. No, I just want to say that, uh, you know, Gurdjieff's fourth way is the same as Tantra, which is an integration of all those three. Um, and it's ahead. especially attractive to people who are already interacting with those three in a more integrated fashion. And those people are also very interested in in-between conditions, right? So you got like, it's hard to tell these things apart in your shaman brain. Now, when you move to a place that's say halfway between the tribes or halfway between the village and nature, you go, oh, I recognize this from somewhere. This is a place where I can't tell which way to go. And I'm really good at that. I'm, I, there's something about me that needs to be investigated in those interstitial spaces. Yeah, and, and the integrations are temporary, but only a shaman can integrate at all. But here I'm very Hegel. The integrations are temporary and a shaman knows that. Because you need another- No, and you see that in Gurdjieff, Andrew. Like Gurdjieff yeah. is not proposing yeah. that his method should be used by everyone. It's yeah, for a certain absolutely. subset. Oh, he's of not a Platonist. He's not a Platonist. <laughs> yes, yes. He's mostly he was mostly kicking out, kicking out his disciples and saying, "Get out of here," you know, and pushing them away as much as possible until one or two came who would really, you know, who could really embody that and and take take that to a different level. Not even like uh, what he was doing. A lot of people thought what he was doing was kind of a practical joke um, compared to what he was wanting other people in the future to do. Which is kind of oh, that's just crazy well. wisdom, Andrew. That yeah. that's absolutely necessary for a shaman. So the shame, this is exactly what I'm saying. The ecstatic experience, the hierophany, really is the shaman's own property. It drives him. He probably loves it as well, at least a certain point. But here's the point. Here's the catch: to tell people he's been there and he's done that doesn't mean other people should be there. The vast majority of people want to hear the story, what it was like, and then they want to go back to their everyday lives. That's exactly. Mm -hmm. Wait, saints, you know, all these idols we have around us, the icons, iconography that we surround us, religion consists of a huge iconography. It has to have an iconography, right? These idols you look up to, they're all larger than life. Hey, shamans, <laughs> larger than life, meaning I'm life, but they're larger mm -hmm. than me. They, they, they live a life that I could never dream of living. And if I would live a life like theirs, I would be one of them. Oh God, no, right? So the, the, the this accepted crazy wisdom means that if you're gonna be trained to be shamanic, you gotta have such an original expression, you cannot mimic me, because then it's dead religion. Dead religion starts with mimicry. Therefore, you behave in such a way it becomes impossible to copy you. Became like people have to be given something that's uh, exciting enough to them that they're not hungry to try to be the shaman class when they're not right. Like the shaman can be all of the animals, 
But then you have to go to the clan and say, oh, you guys are the leopard clan. You guys are the hawk clan. And you can take a pleasure in that. You can organize yourself around that. You can even have peak experiences and flow states around that. Right. So one of the things the shaman networks have to do is to take responsibility for making sure the other people have their versions so that they're not hungry to try the shamanic stuff all the time in unstructured ways, because that's going to be disruptive to the entire tribe. Exactly. I lived with Spirit Quest outside of Kidos, like Aubrey Marcus, it turns out, and 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 learned everything about ayahuasca and wachuma, etc. With the shamans in the jungle, right? Inside Iquitos, which is like a mining town, you know, 400,000 people, everybody just moved in. Uh, poor pastors would just put the ayahuasca in the streets for American college kids to pay them. And they were poor, they wanted the money. And then these college kids took cocaine, drank ayahuasca and died. Happened every week. That's a perfect example of when shamanic comes inside the tribe. It spreads death and disaster. That's exactly why Christianity and Islam went up against it. It's like, we must not have any of this in our communities. It must be banned. The problem was that they banned it throughout because they went after the shamans. Why? Because they believe religion should be centralized. It should have a Mecca or a Jerusalem or a Rome, which you'd be controlled from. And therefore, they couldn't tolerate a decentralized system with independent monasteries who decided for themselves what they wanted to do. That was the disaster of Islamic Christianity. So they came up with the idea that everything in our religion is transparent. Disaster. And if everything is transparent, we cannot have any shamanic practices. They must be banned. Oh, we call them sin. We say they're from the devil. We lock up the people who practice them. We call them witches and burn them to death. Great. We have abjects we can burn. Great. We got a great religion because everybody would be terrified of being a witch. Oh, now they will sit still in the churches and mosques and, and we will tell them exactly what to do. But this call to transparency has come to an end because it's gone so far in our culture and been inherited by secular culture that everybody demands that everything should be accessible to them. And finally, you have two-year-olds watching violent pornography, getting their brains fucked up. Wow, we need barred absolutes. We need clearly defined limits. You can go here, but not here. And exactly this is actually the recipe against nihilism because nihilism is the deserved the deserved result of a cult of transparency. That's what Nietzsche pointed out and said the death of the Christian God. Is the, the nihilism was built in from the very beginning. The very call to transparency in Christianity meant that one day could end with nothing but nihilism. So, so religion really starts with the monastery and outside the door, it has a sign and it says, you're not getting in and fuck off. That's how you believe in God. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, you know, the other things. Yep. Go ahead. Well, I was just thinking about my experience, you know, in the touch of Buddhist tradition, whereas I, I had to study very hard to get permission to do these secret practices, which are now available on the internet, you know, for everybody, if you wanted to, you could find the information. Of course, you're not getting the real practices, but you're, you're getting the information. So, so I'm wondering, like, like, like Bard, the, the the internet is is just kind of smashing Bard absolutes everywhere, but it not but not really. How do we how do we work with that in, in the you know? Oh, the next internet's gonna close doors everywhere. Like you're not getting in there unless we trust you, and you must keep your mouth shut forever. Freemasons, all these things are back, big time. Next ten years, nothing else. 
we are the, the free and open internet is dead in the sense that no, not all information will be available to everybody. And it will start well, with people with parents being that, obsessed right? about like, the children. People are aware there's something on the other side of all the information that they're seeing, right? Just the idea of a deep fake means you can access it, but you are aware that you can't see mm-hmm. what really is going on on the other side of that boundary. Yep. I've seen AI porn made from me already because I'm a celebrity and uh, sorry, it isn't me. (laughs) (laughs) Glad people have those fantasies. Apparently the AI does, but that's just not me. So that's all I can say. Still got no public porn out there. As an example, I think religion is very much about Religion is very much about the steps in your life you can take at any given time. And there's an end to that where you reach the peak of your journey and you reach your archetype and then you're rewarded by the community. You've been the good father, you've been the good mentor, you've been a good hunter, whatever. Now, for the rest of us, like you're pressing on towards something divine eventually, the transcendent. Now, the transcendent has two appearances. Either you haven't challenged yourself enough yet, so there's more in you, then you probably should go into the shamanic and see how far you can press yourself before you go and kill yourself, whatever. Or the transcendent is simply get get kids. They will survive you. They are the future beyond your own death, and you settle the whole thing. And that's, of course, what the vast majority of people do. They reproduce or are part of a reproduction process. But for some of us, having children is totally beside the point. If there's a kid there, there's a kid there. It doesn't matter. There is a personal journey. I think individualism, by the way, is only to be practiced by shamans because shamans have to be very isolated in the work. That's why they're the only proper individuals. Again, when individualism was big in the 20th century, shamanism got too big. It replaced proper phallic power. So the same thing goes here. So you, you step back and look at that, and then you understand that, okay, isolating myself is a requirement. Oh, I happen to have the psyche for it. Now, if you have the psyche for it, which I'm careful people who do psychedelics there are some people who can just do tons of it no effect they're the shamans clearly that's shamanic talent there's a similarity to trance as well here like um in order for people to live their lives in a meaningful way and contribute and function together they have to be able to keep their attention focused on a particular pattern And sometimes that pattern needs to be readjusted. So then you have hypnotherapeutic types of studies, which, of course, Gurdjieff was kind of a hypnotherapist when he was young. But then you have people who are really interested in the mechanism of trance itself. They want to go into all kinds of states and just see what's there. Right. And that's extremely unpredictable. Some people are built to be able to handle that. And they even need some training based on how they're built. But in general, you've got to be able to have a system built so that all kinds of trances can be organized productively and that trance can be used to readjust people. And I think the uh, prehistorical peoples, the shamans, were often much better at that than our contemporary notion of what hypnosis is, right? They were able to get people to invent civilization. Like, let's just all build this city. Let's all come here every year. Let's all do this. That's an extraordinary act of collaborative trance making, right? People aren't going to do that just out of the blue. They've got to be organized and they've got to be able to go into a mind frame where that's what they're focused on. They're ignoring everything else and it feels good to be in that flow. So these technologies of trance and flow, I think, are really something that the early peoples are expert at but they're mediated through the shamanic class who wants to explore them for their own sake and the general population that requires someone else to help them do it in a productive way. Oh, I mean, you take drugs before you go out hunting the leopard in the jungle. Otherwise, the leopard will kill you. 
You got to enhance your senses. You got to enhance your eye, sight, everything. Yeah, you put drugs in, you go out. And who teaches you that? Shamans. That's like basic shamanic knowledge for eight-year-olds in a way, if you live in a tribe. I totally agree. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I had some questions here. Should we want to bring them in, Andrew? Or you have? Sure. Um, Eric Lundro just asked the about there must have been some kind of religious aspects uh, encompassing social relations between nomadic tribes. Some rules of engagement had to shape our religion. No, not at all. Uh, you killed. Uh, oh, enemy killed. Okay. The major break, which I claim is the most important break in human history, happened when Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon, 539 before Christ. Way more important date than the Christ date. 539 before Christ, the Persians conquered Babylon. And the Babylonians were shocked. They expected to see the children boiled in oil, as was always the case with any war up until then in human history. Cyrus the Great had a new religion called Zoroastrianism. And what he did was he said that, no, actually, I'm going to create an empire. I'm going to conquer the next city too and the next city too. I'm just going to create an empire. So I want to keep you Babylonians. You know, you can be like, like honorary Persians, if you like. Uh, I have to tell you this one thing first, though. You're too bad at being Babylonians. You must be better Babylonians. So therefore, I'm going to go over to your temple, to Marduk, your biggest god. You know your god, your phallus. And I'm going to kiss his feet. He walked over to the temple of Marduk and kissed Marduk's feet. And then put aside a budget to renovate the fucking temple because it looked too bad. And then adopted the Babylonians. He also found a small minority, a little cult originally coming from Egypt called Jews. They're already good traders running around the streets. And he basically told them, oh, my God, you've got a religion that's very similar to us, but it's just for your own people, like the people who speak the same language. So it's not an imperial religion. It's a nationalist religion. So they related to nationalism. They, he, you know, Cyrus was fascinated. So he said, listen, here's a bunch, loads of money, like Olympic Games or whatever, Olympic Games. But you go back to Jerusalem where you came from and build the fucking second temple to honor your God, because your God is obviously the same as mine. It's again, it was the division of Yahweh and, and Eloi is the same as the division of Huda, Masters, or Asterism. Made perfect sense. Theology rhymed. And then the Jews first acknowledged Cyrus the Great as the only non-Jewish Messiah they ever had one of the greatest figures in their history. And secondly, they rewrote their entire scripture, the Torah, wrote it down and changed the story into three siblings rather than a savior coming out of Egypt. And, and suddenly they had Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, which has mimicked everything from Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism and Judaism started the Persian Hebrew axis, which is the foundation of Western culture. Nothing to do within the Greeks or Romans. This is the foundation of Western culture. That moment when Cyrus the Great gave the, put the Cyrus cylinder Babylon has said, no, 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 I'm not going to boil your children. No, I'm not even going to kill you. I'm going to keep every one of you and turning you into better Babylonians. That is the radical move. Before then, you just killed the enemy, period. Yeah, there are situations with uh, tribes where you can have reasonably good relations that have some kind of local protocol. Uh, obviously you've got these people who can move between tribes, but that's not generalizable to everyone. Now you might have a situation where they're pretty good, but usually that's mediated by either trade or by some larger identity structure, right? Within this nation, within this kingdom, you actually all count as one tribe. Now you have a protocol for dealing with each other economically and socially. When you get to that imperial scale, if you have a healthy empire, one of the nice things you see is this ability to fold in the forms from every one of the different tribes, right? 
the Romans had a lot of problems. But one of the things they were very good at is you can keep worshiping your own God as long as you've also got a statue of Caesar next to him. Right. The the Vedic civilization was really good at that. All your gods keep worshiping them. Just understand they're a version of one of our three gods. So the imperial mindset is plastic enough to absorb and create these situations where the tribes can have protocols to interact between each other. But on their own, in the wild, so to speak, they're going to function more or less like primate tribes and just going to periodically try to slaughter each other. Yeah, you create an elite that ties the empire together. So what you do with Zoroastrianism is that you create an elite religion. What the Jews then did and the Phoenicians was that they said, we create a, a people instead that speak the same language and could therefore all read the script. So Hebrews were total pioneers, Persians total pioneers. These are the two great ideas from the West. Just about everything else when it comes to the history of philosophy is Eastern. But these two ideas of larger forms than tribe, empire and, and, and nation were invented in the West. Later copied, tried to mimic by the Chinese, the Indians, et cetera, because they tried to create their own versions of empire, still struggle with that. But the US constitution today, for example, is built on the Persian imperial structure. Had three centers of power, let them never be one. No tyrant ever, Big bad idea, bad idea like. So that's exactly why having the elite religion also means that the other people have a folk religion, which is what polytheism is. It runs parallel with monotheism. And polytheism is then iconology. And that's popular religion. That's just the saints that everybody worships anyway. And, you know, the vast majority of people, they want to go and see a saint and talk to the saint when nobody else talks to them. And then they hope the saint talk on, on their behalf to a god, right? Or you go and see the priest. The priest talks on your behalf to the god. That's how religion is structured. It's hierarchical. Terricio, you have a question, hey? Do you want to uh, unmute yourself and ask it? Hello, yes. And I'll unspotlight everybody so we can see the crowd. Hello, Alexander. Hello, Andrew. Hello. I'm just going to read what I wrote. Um, considering the keeping of the fire in the Zoroastrian religion, what would be the equivalent that could work today? If the shamanic have their own organization because of their own capacities, how can this fire be expressed in today's internet age? Do we need to wait until the global meta-religion appears or how will it appear after the false shamanic phase? Well, I don't want the global meta-religion. I think it sounds horrible to begin with. <laughs> I believe in many local religions and I think it, that was Zoroastrian is an idea. Remember that Zoroastrianism has nothing to do with Islam or Christianity. It's a monist faith. It's basically reformed Hinduism. And that's exactly why I studied Kashmiri Shaivism in parallel. Because Kashmiri Shaivism, to me, is the closest you got in India to Zoroastrianism. So the idea here is basically, how do you keep a large space with many people together and try to keep them in peace for as long as possible without killing each other? And before that going back to what Lehman said before, before that, the only way for two tribes not to kill each other constantly was if they'd actually were one tribe originally, they killed another tribe, took over its territory and became two tribes that were related. The problem is that eventually two related tribes tend to be Cain and Abel anyway, started killing each other. The fact that they're related makes it even worse. So you go to war anyway. So priesthood has been this one topic. How do we keep, how do we keep war away for as long enough so enough kids can breed so we can get to the next phase. War will probably come anyway, but how, how do we just avoid war? It's, it's, it's about diplomacy, very much about diplomacy. So how do we create a narrative 
essentially, you've got the two rivers, and they're flowing from one mountain top, father, sky god, down into the sea, mother, earth goddess. And you got the two rivers floating, and it's basically described as two brothers, and, and they both had their origins. And eventually you discover the two brothers have the same father. And once you have that narrative, of course, then you build a temple right between the two rivers. And then people come to the temple, and then you preach, you, you shouldn't kill each other because you're brothers. Stop killing each other. And then you got a population explosion. And of course, the temple becomes a trading post, and it becomes a city, and it becomes a Babylon. And that's how religion essentially turns into permanent settlement and cities and cultures. And there, the idea of the person was like, but how, how, how the fuck, you know, keeping a village together is not hard because the village is essentially just the same nomadic tribe all over again. It's just a saucy unsettled. But how do we keep trade between villages without them killing each other? When I came to New Guinea, they still hadn't solved that. It was a Saturday afternoon. They went and killed the other guys. You know, I was part of it. So that must have been the hard question. And whoever succeeded had a population explosion eventually set the standards for the next, the next generation of civilization. And what the Zoroastrians and what the Jews were considering, do we either have a religion for an elite to keep an empire together and then have a court language spoken with the elite? Persian was the court language of the entire Middle East and India until the British arrived in the 19th century. Amazing. Persian was a court language for 2,500 years. That's exactly what a court language and an elite that keeps the empire together and they have the local communities to themselves. That's how far you can stretch an empire. I say today, even, even that model is very, very hard to maintain today. Very hard. So I'd say there's no global meta religion coming. I, th I think what's coming next is shamans finding each other, creating their own shamanic networks, knowing that they should stay out of public affairs and away from other people. Otherwise they just become lynch mobbed, do their own thing and then wait for the people who seriously do the personal journey towards the shamanic realm and then see if you can dress them. Sooner or later, the leaders of the community will come to you as well. And that's next. And they will then ask for the advice. That's when a priest gives advice to chieftain and chieftain can become a king. That's what leadership and management of companies whatever is ultimately about. How can the shamanic serve the community to thrive and stay in peace? So it's, yeah, it's those communities same. are going to be at once decentralized, right? They're going to be all over the place. You're not really going to have like a universal structure, but you are going to have a universal or the possibility of uh, a sensibility, a language, something we all have in common that goes along with the technology that we're all sharing. And I think there's a possibility for that to be very ecological in its nature. Like if we ask ourselves the question for some local group with its local shamanic thing, what's it going to do that's the equivalent of keeping a sacred flame burning? It might be that they're organizing, looking after some part of the biosphere, some part of the ecosystem, because I think what we're going to have to do as a general civilization is have ecological responsibility built in somehow, ecological responsibility and the possibility of deep ecological experience. So maybe instead of... Uh, a sacred flame, what you're doing is keeping a lake going. You're keeping a population alive. Like we see this in a lot of indigenous communities now is they're trying to take sacred responsibility for particular parts of the environment that are ancestrally associated with their people. Uh, so that kind of continuity and that kind of anchoring of the sacred could be something that um, fills that function and also bridges a little bit between the general population and the shamans, because there's going to be an ecological sensibility that needs somehow to be shared between both of those groups. I think AI will help tremendously. 
Because, so like the, because the, even the exploitative mindset can go to the AI said, even my exploitative mindset that I want to be rich and successful, whatever, you could still have a calculation. Yeah, that's how you use something and employed it. So you don't destroy it. And the, in the principle of implementation would definitely be law in any kind of community anywhere in the world within the next within the next few years. I mean, the principle of implementation is all it takes. That's what Lehman is talking about here. It's like it's not about keeping it exactly the same way. I met Sami people in Sweden who are sick to death of being called indigenous people and having reindeer. It's like, God, you know, fantasy made up about us, 19th century fantasy. Now we're being forced to live it. I want to live in a fucking city and I want to have jeans and t-shirt and I want to take drugs and I want to Wi-Fi. I don't want to live in the countryside and raise reindeer. You know, so we shouldn't romanticize too much about it. But I think as soon as you implement the principle of implementation and put it into the algorithm, then give it to the AI, AI will be totally superior than us here. And here's the great thing, the great news for the priestly aspect of shamanic personality types. We were providing the logos Every damn library in the world ever was built inside a monastery. We collected information, we collected knowledge, and we personified wisdom. The ultimate priest is the wisest man of the community. He got to, he's got to be smart and usually older. The priest is older than the king, right? Whereas the guy who aspires towards territorial expansion, therefore protects the tribe and its interest, the kingly royal character, the chieftain is the other main phallic character. But, but when you realize that what AI does is that AI will not do pathos. It has no feelings or anything. It won't do art. It will just do mimic, mimicry of art or whatever it does, right? So what you do instead is that you will look to AI, for example, to the logos. So the logos here, which we as priests or monks or whatever like to get involved with, actually AI is really useful for us. It should be in our control. It should be our remain. Our, and that's why the monks I work with in my monasteries in Scandinavia, they're all programmers and coders. They get into the computers. Computers should be part of monast modern monastery culture. It makes perfect sense. Mm. Well, it's the you same people that we trusted socially to speak to the gods on our behalf should essentially be the same people we're trusting socially to speak to um, electronic and artificial superintelligence on everyone's behalf. Yeah, I agree. So we can handle the logos pathos divide. And of course, then we go, here's full on ex ecstatic experience, whatever, blow your brains out. The infinite now will be experienced by you. And you may be involved sex, maybe doesn't, whatever. Ecstatic experience that you will then memorize for the rest of your life will make your entire life meaningful from the time it happened. To do that, the infinite now, pathos, 100% pathos. The other part, the logos, that's running the library, collecting information about everything in the world and knowing more than anybody else does. So when academia today is killing itself, it's about to retake that position and bring it back to the monasteries, which is why I constantly talk about a digital monasterial culture with digital monasteries you can trust because you can't trust a single academic institution in the world any longer. They're like totally over dead career machines. They've done it, they, they're finished. That's what I think is next. Yeah, we've got a question from Owen. Owen, do you want to jump in here? Well, I mean, actually, Alexander and Lehman both as answered an aspect of it, which is like, what do you think is the pragmatic role for the priestly class to be taking with in regard to the more mainstream class, um, the sort of Petersonians and guys like that? Um, but I also remember at the start, Alexander, you wanted to say something about spirituality and capitalism. And so maybe there's... Um, there's a way to bring those ideas in. Well, I think today, a perfect religious question today is capitalism. And capitalism is deeply spiritual in the sense that capitalism 
goes all the way after you and grabs you at your throat and says that what is not for sale, right? What is not for sale, right? If everything in your life for sale, you're done. You have no soul, right? What is it that you could at least can afford to not make for sale? You don't sell your kids, do you? Do you sell your wife? Maybe you do. I don't know. You got to ask yourself the question today, what is not for sale? Because that part that's not for sale, the sacred and the private, not the profane, not the public, the sacred and the private, needs to be restored in the way that Christianity killed. The sacred and the private is your own barred absolute. That's where your soul resides. That's what's not for sale. And it's exactly the day when corporations and politicians are going after our souls and say that, well, you work for a company that's a real spiritual values and we have some political beliefs and, you know, God, I hate it. No, you have a, you're a fucking corporation. You're here to make money for your owners and you're supposed to pay me well. You're supposed to honor me for working hard and pay me well and, and tell everybody that we're proud of our workers. We expect them to be religiously, spiritual, politically engaged in their spare time. It's none of our business. We're just proud to make a great product and a great service. This is what I teach corporations today. And I say, get out of the fucking spirituality scene quickly. Because if you're stuck in the spirituality, I can't wait for the lawsuits from the employees when you give them the wrong drugs with the wrong shamans. You cannot mix commercialism with, with, with spirituality. When you do, it's not, it's fake, totally fake. Totally fake. So you got to understand that the potentialism that everybody's going out there is going to operate and try to sneak precisely into the sacred of the private. That's why it's so endlessly fascinating. But it is really about our eyeballs, our ears. Nobody can access to them. We hate ads, for example. We hate advertising, right? Because what advertising is the most profane, most cynical thing anybody can ever think of. It's even more cynical than slavery. I think religion today deals with these things. It deals with what is not for sale in your life. And how can you make more things not for sale? How can we you know, afford to say no to the money? That's where spirituality starts. That's good. I'm wondering if Lehman has some, uh, something to add to that conversation about capitalism and spirituality. I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on that. Well, it's an interesting thing because capitalism has the potential to be viewed in a very simple way or in a constantly unfolding way, where it's a bit of a terminological problem. Uh, when do we stop calling it capitalism? I think there's a an interesting complement to what Bart is saying here, that absolutely as individuals and as what the shamanic class has to be putting forward is, uh, where are the membranes between you and the economy? What is not for sale? What do you, how do you hold identity apart from the identities that you're offered within the systems that you're a part of, especially as nation states break down and corporations try to take over the role as if they are a tribe or a religion unto themselves, somebody has to check that. Now, at the same time, there's a pos there are lots of different possibilities for whole new kinds of economies that won't look exactly like capitalism, right? So one of the things is well, you could get numbers from more sources, right? Right now we get numbers from sort of resource-based negotiations with each other, but could you use social media likes? Could you use a person's neurological condition? Uh, could you use ecology, right? The ecological economists are always thinking, uh, how do we count the tree in numbers that could be entered into the capitalist register of some kind so that it would modify the outcomes? one of the things we see in capitalism right now is not just a mechanism of capitalism, but a, a specific 
agreement within that mechanism about what kinds of things we draw the numbers from. Those kinds of things can be arranged by the so-called invisible hand. We don't really know what it would look like if we drew more numbers from more kinds of places. If more of our private life and our ecological life and our social life were able to be counted in that system, would that system become more monstrous and imbalanced? Or would it migrate to a new level of complexity and be a kind of economy that we maybe wouldn't call capitalism anymore? So there's some a number of interesting possibilities for future economics, but they're always going to have to have the uh, spiritual complement from people who are putting up some kind of membrane between yourself and the economy. And it's not just the economy, it's every kind of social transactional thing as well, right? So yes, there, there's a huge incentive and it distorts all of our thinking and takes over our identity when money is involved. But there's also this thing of what are you watching? It's this, where are you going on your holidays? How do you respond when grandma calls on the phone? There are all these things that are your social exchange tokens in various ways. And your spiritual life has to do with where you put boundaries relative to those tokens, not just what can they not buy, but also what don't you tell grandma? Mm, that's good. Yeah, we redefine these things all the time. I should just say that I love capitalism. I think it's a great, massive shit test, and it has produced enormous value precisely for its shamanic qualities. You see, you could stand in every street corner of the world 500 years ago and brag about something and lie, and nobody could test what you were saying. Now any kid can walk up to you as a snake oil salesman. Any kid can walk up to you and say, yeah, yeah, you got that story. It's coming from so far away. It's been done for so many years. It's got a Louis Vuitton little sign on. But what, is, what does it cost? And that radical question, what does it cost, really reveals the truth or how that person values what they got in their hand. That is incredibly radical. And that's why I say capitalism should definitely be included to understood religion, because capitalism enabled strangers to trade. And all we know is that if strangers trade, they go to war less. Please note how this exactly priests tie to acknowledge all the time. This is exactly why there's strong incentives towards trade and capitalism in Buddhism and Taoism and Judaism and Zoroastrianism. They don't have a problem with money. They don't have a problem with capitalism. They know what it is. They also know its limitation. They also know that there's family and there's clan and there's community and there's an anjuman and there's a synagogue, you know, and there's a sangha that is way more sacred than anything money can buy. And capitalism accepts that. Capitalism is just the relationship with the outside world, with strangers. And that, that's exactly why the whole phobia against capitalism is a Christian Muslim thing. I don't buy into that at all. I think capitalism is fantastic, but I just teach that this is the limit of capitalism. And that's actually what I say. capitalism going into a spirit, making spiritual claims for itself that is no right to claim. Capitalism should just defend what it did beautifully and keep on doing it. But when it tries to do something it cannot do, it gets really fucked up. And precisely the exploitative nature of capitalism which has nothing to do with capitalism. It just has to do with the lack of regulation. It's been an anarchy. Now, if you just add the exploitative aspect, add to the capitalism, you get a different economy. And that, that's what I think Lehman is nailing. Economy is basically the ecology of value communication. And we always communicate value between each other. Actually, our most treasured value is the value of communicating value with others. That's what relations are about. So it, it, economy is a beautiful world, should always be kept there next to ecology, understood as if ecology and economy are together. And I don't have a problem with capitalism. The problem I have is 
The capitalist that goes pretentious and pretends it's nothing, it isn't. And that spirituality and economy have a balanced relationship where they can hold each other in check, right? Because spirituality can get lost in its own bullshit if there's not something to hold it to the world. Likewise, the economy can spread out into all kinds of domains that aren't purely economic. So spirituality has to hold economy in check and economy has to ground spirituality. They have to negotiate boundary conditions that are good for everybody. Look at Bart quoting Christ just for once, right? Christ walks in the temple and he's really angry at the traders inside the temple. He's not angry at trade. It's just the trade is in the wrong place. Hmm. <laughs> it's misplaced. It shouldn't be there. It's supposed to be sacred. The sacred is not a place where you trade with strangers. That's not sacred. That's profane. Keep it outside the temple. And actually every temple in the world has been a trading post. Trade starts around temples. We first put a place where God lives. Now, if God has a place where he lives, an axis mundi, you've got a firm point. Then you can speak about property around that. And you get a trading community and it has to be fed. And suddenly you get organized farming and everything. And you got a city, then you get nations and empires. Entire civilization is built on the idea that we must find a place where God can, can live. And then we're going to build God's house. Then next, this is one of the areas I think Bard's work is excellent is on keeping trade in the picture, right? Because it's not just Mm -hmm. we have contemporary biases around economics that we project onto our ancestors. They didn't feel the same way, right? For them, the trade routes were part of what religion was handling. And that goes right back even in the nomadic cultures, which had very interesting extended trade routes. For them, economy was part and parcel of what they were doing and not separate from their intimate and spiritual and transcendental life opportunities. Exactly. So what I'm doing now in my work here with my team at Björn Bakke and, and Stockholm School of Economics, basically separate the two, making it explicit for people having two different institutions. The thing is this, you do everything when you're a trader for your company, you trade for your community, you're supposed to trade successfully. You have some funny stories to tell, you get back and you get fucked, right? Exactly what you want. The cost of though, the spiritual house you go to before you go into the next place must be a place that's not part of the corporate budget. Why? Because you must be able to go somewhere and question why you're a trader in the first place. Whether you belong to the right community or should move somewhere else. Whether what you're doing is worth doing it at all. Now, how can you possibly question that if you don't walk into a tantra girl? Again, difference between psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Psychotherapy means they got to fix you and send you back to work, back into the side, and not question the system. Psychoanalysis means you're healthy and strong enough to get out of the system and start questioning what the fucking system is and why you're a part of it. This is what tantric, this is what the tantric practice is meant to do. It means to take you out of the entire life situation you're in, at your own little budget, in the cost hog, and then explore what you're doing. And that's exactly why a cost hog will not charge you. A cost hog just say, this is for free. It's just work we do. Uh, here's a little box. If you feel like you want to contribute to the community, you will help others in your own situation. Feel free to do it. If you can't, that's okay. Leave. That's what spiritual work should be about. Yeah. And that's why I insist the people who want to do spiritual work must pay from their own budget. And the cost is basically just covering the cost. It's just like, we got a meal, we got a bed here, uh, you know, that cost. And that's what it costs. And here's where you pay. Anything else on top of that? Voluntary. That's yeah, so there's, spiritual work. There's kind of something in the Christian tradition which has separated like the sacred and the trade, right? Uh, but but trading is sacred as well in a sense. Um, 
you know, even though it's dealing with profane or whatever matters, like I, I like this idea of bringing the two together. And I, I think that is profoundly tantric because, because we're not, we're not separating heaven from, from earth or, or, you know, um, making those kind of dualities. I, I think, I, th I think the problem here is that this is easy. If you're a monist, if you just, if you just make the fundamental decision, you're a monist, you just contemplate on it. Everything in the world is related to everything else. Nothing can happen in the universe without having an effect on the entire rest of the universe. Mm -hmm. Gravity is nothing else, right? Yeah. Okay, if you accept that, then there's no duality. Yeah. There's no duality per se. It's just difference. There are enormous amounts of differences. You know, Spinoza says this is one substance, but an infinite amount of attributes within the substance. There's difference, yes. That duality is, if you like, and trialities or whatever, but it's a modest world. Once you accept this modest world, you you got to sit down and figure out how does how does how does how does um, how does the sacred space with its very specific rules, the aditernology, how does that relate to trading practices, and how does that relate to hunting, and how does that relate to making babies, and how does that relate to running a daycare center, how does that relate to taking care of the old, how does that relate to get on the move when you have to, how does that you know suddenly you realize that all these things are interconnected. Yeah. Once they're interconnected, and you're the modest world, then your religion is just the connection between the different aspects of your life. There's no need to say there's good and evil. Oh, here's another life coming later, which is good. And this life here is evil. And therefore, I can hate my body. And my little spirit is special and pillar of saintage or whatever. And therefore, I will hate everything in this world and wait for all to go down in flames. And there a new Jerusalem would just come from out of nowhere, created by angels who apparently have nothing better to do. Okay, Christianity and Islam ridiculous. I say the separate, like Kartir, my favorite thinker ever, Persian Mobeg, fantastic guy, third century. He said, when the Gnostics came along with Mani, and he's responsible for killing Mani, obviously, he said that these dualists, these pillar saints, will cause more damage to humanity than anything else anybody can ever come up with. And I think he was right. I think we're stuck with the end of dualism. And that's where the West has to bow down and say to the East, thank you for preserving modernism for us because modernism was right all along. And everything now we do in the natural science, everything points to the same way, modernism. I want to bring religion, it's just glue. It's very natural when you have a certain kind of brain balance. Like we haven't talked much about brains in the McGillchrist sense, which is partly real and partly metaphorical. But there's a story here that connects the proto-civilization and the new civilization that we're going into in terms of brain balances, right? So we could imagine the nomadic people having a naturalistic brain balance, you know, and especially if they're Neolithic, when you're Neolithic, every technology is something you dig out of the stone. It's like finding the faces, finding the artistic forms inside a sculpture. You're constantly evoking everything. As soon as you move to pottery, you've got a little bit more agentic, and then you move to civilization, you move to writing, you move to print, and you're slowly getting this left brain dominance. Now, McLuhan would tell us that's being reset now by the digital tools. And so the reason we're having this discussion in a way is that the whole culture is being reset by the digital tools. So that we're starting to become collectively more sympathetic to the shamanic, the ecological, to the complex relational monism, right? So this is the discussion of religion in our day because of the kinds of brains we're now having, which are similar in a way to the kinds of brains those pre-civilized or early civilized ancestors had. 
Beautiful. I agree, and- except with one small little note about my Gilchrist. My, it's funny that women, once you start asking them about Amy Gilchrist, he's just writing about the masculine brain. <laughs> The logos pathos divide and the dominance of logos over pathos, which means pathos will only return, suppressed and explode in your face, which is what happens, obviously, with men, uh, is correct. But actually, the, the female brain is pretty united because it's mythical. <laughs> Women, though, for that fantastic brain they've got, the mythical brain, the mimetic brain, which everything is tied together, it actually holds together, uh, is less me and the Gilchrist. Oh, they do pay a very high price for it where they need men. Women have more difficult than men separating fact and fiction. <laughs> that would add to Michael Christ. It's a great study on the masculine brain, but he has never asked himself the question throughout his entire work, his entire career. Like maybe the female brain is different from the masculine, but Sherard suffers from the same problem. He's never gendered his philosophy, but great, great, great to put it in there. I think pathos returns big time. And another one is that logos is stronger than ever due to AI and computation. And we're learning computation zeros and ones and whatever you can do with zeros and ones, magically AI can do, right? Which gives us as humans more room for the pathical narrative. Yeah. Um, and that's where we will go as humans. We're going to the pathical. Ennis has uh, had a question for some time. I want to bring Ennis's question in if you don't mind. Um, yeah, yeah, do, you want, do you want to unmute yourself, Ennis? And- yes, uh, I think you answered partially, but... Yeah, you spoke um, earlier about uh, this transition between nomadic life and the first settlements, um, how there was all these shamanic practices being happening and uh, and the sage will be observing that and say, oh, this is something we can bring into this new settlement age. Um, So I'm curious if we're doing the same thing now in this information age and looking at what's happening and um what can one say about what is emerging right now as practices uh or 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 best practices among practices Lehman, do you want to take that question first because you also have something to say yeah it's um it's an ongoing negotiation right so the people who are capable of understanding this better who are predisposed and also have some training in this area have to constantly be looking at um, what's the healthy and unhealthy version of each practice and each aspect of the society, right? So it's the, once you have cities, okay, you've got cities now. How do, how do you have a healthy city? How do you have a healthy civilization? And what are the things in cities that lead to collapse? So likewise, you what you need is a very healthy, vibrant network of people who are constantly engaged in the discussion and the evaluation of what those things are because there's going to be a lot of potential practices and there's a lot of aspects of the civilization that are emerging that are novel. And many of them will have positive or negative components, depending on how you skew it. Right. So what you need is this very lively ongoing kind of shamanic network of people who are always reconsidering which things fall on which sides of the membrane and how we are teasing apart the useful versus the non-useful aspect of any of it. Right. There's healthy and non-healthy use of Internet. There's healthy and non-healthy use of biofeedback devices, everything that we're coming up with, as well as our social and psychotechnologies. Right. You can have a corrupt, degenerative version of all the things John Verveke's talking about. Right. So somebody has to be able to step in and say, oh, it's missing this. It's missing that. If you do it like this, you get good results. If you do it like this, you're just going to get a replication of the same old problems that lead to degeneration. I would I would just add that. 
I love Simon Critchley and his work. And he, he was like, a, you know, the next big leftist thinker. And everybody thought he'd go revolutionary. And then he wrote a small book called The Faith of the Faithless. 11 years ago, I love the book. Uh, highly recommend it. And he basically said, uh, actually, this is not the time for the revolution at all because technology has taken over. <laughs> revolution is, technology is the revolution, meaning for human beings. This is the time of retraction. That's where I got my ideas from, that maybe we're just entering the new dark ages. The big empires, Russia first will fall apart, probably China and the United States. Smaller city states like Dubai, Singapore, Estonia seem to be doing a lot better. Smaller models, local communities with employative principles installed into their laws from the very beginning, creating trust between the people in power and Every, you know, everyday people, you know, somebody you know is your politician, yeah, uh, much more human. I think what's going to happen is that we're going to see more and more local communities. Uh, some of the guys here, Victor, for example, here at the Urban Monastery, we're living in, in Stockholm. We're going to go probably to Rotan, Honduras and live with the Bitcoin community uh, during the next year. Uh, you know, we study these communities, right, and see what they're doing, because they're, they're, the, they're the pilgrims on the Mayflower today. They, they're the Hebrews who are leaving Egypt. The, the, I love these crypto communities. You know, they're just going somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. At the same time as Dubai and Singapore are wonderful city states of what, three or four million people, where if you don't like it, you just leave. <laughs> you know, it call it, it's not nomadology, I call it exodology. We're going exodological. It's like if you don't get what we want, we just move somewhere else. Americans are really good at it. They've always done it in a way. So, in an exodological society, you don't you don't vote in an election in the voting booth every four years. It's pathetic. The politics is done anyway. We'll soon have a choice system. Would you prefer AI over a politician? You vote, yes, AI. <laughs> Definitely, right? So politics is now un being unfolded and replaced by something new. And in that realm, I think the starting point for all of us of a genuine shamanic personality interest, retract. Preferably go to the countryside, live in a monastery. You can have Wi-Fi, etc. But once you've retracted, like Layman says, once you've stepped away from something, you understand, okay, that's how much Wi-Fi I should have every day. That's when I should go online. That's when I should turn off the computer. That's when I do my yoga. That's what I should eat. Not that. You know, and suddenly when the stress is gone and you start your practices, the first you realize exactly what your priorities are. That is spirituality. That is genuine spirituality. And, and we're going there. We want to go there. I see it everywhere. I'm basically now becoming, I'm not a preacher. I'm becoming an anthropologist, studying communities already practiced, just to find out what they do right and what they do wrong, what their experiences, to learn from them and put that together so that others can learn from them how you attract and build a spiritual community. Benita Roy uh, had anthropologists like that, too. right? Like there's a something that's a little bit analogous to the beginning of the cities, which is a huge experimental diversity of communities, intentional communities, these new concentrations. Uh, and how are they going to function? How are they going to succeed? How do they learn from each other? Who knows what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong? Is there some way they can support each other, especially as the rest of the system comes apart? So we need to sort of start evolving now uh, gardeners and anthropologists who can operate in the in-between space between a huge number of local community experiments. And public space is dead. Public space is over. One liner here. If you make it in New York, you make it everywhere. I think there's something like that. If you make it here, you make it everywhere. New York, New York, New York, something like that. Well, nobody wants to make it in New York because New York is only New York housewives. <laughs> it cannot be anything but a reality freak show. 
on TV. And you don't want to be that. And you don't want to be AI porn. You don't want to be in the public space at all. Retraction, retraction, retraction. The only dangerous thing is that power itself will also retract. The people in power will not want to be public figures, which makes it fiendishly difficult to know who they are or where they're at. But that's another story altogether. I, I tell you, technology is running the empire and the empire is global. We are going intensely more local. And why not create your own local community and set it up your own form of gate, the community, whatever you want to call it. Start there. Retraction. Okay. I wanted to, uh, Bonita Roy, who I haven't seen in a long time, uh, had a kind of an interesting comment. So uh, uh, so some of us know Bonita, so I'd like to bring her in if she she would like to uh, share her comment and Can you hear talk me? to these guys. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, Layman told me he was going to be here, so this this was the pull. Um, hi, Alexander. Um, yeah. So what happened was I made my comment, and then like this whole explosion came that made my comment kind of ir ir irrelevant. Like it went from like almost a criticism to like a yeah, and and so what happened was Alexander uh, made the comment that. Uh, men could tell fact from fic fiction better than women because women are steeped in mythological thinking. And I, and I thought, well, yes, I get that. But then there's this larger context because both of them can't tell the difference between reality and a demi-reality or outright delusion, right? So there, there's this like distinction, but then there's like both modes can be profoundly confused. And then Alexander started to say, I wasn't here the whole time, so sorry if 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 it had been repeated, uh, that we're going into the dark ages, like there's a retraction. To me, this is this is not neither fact nor mythology. It's more just experientially real. Because um, how could you base it on facts? And it's not really a mythology and and um yeah so so that that whole follow-up became very uh um yeah it was really juicy in terms of like um we're fucked not everybody's gonna make it um and i thought like um um you know the, the there's a lot of possibility in the dark ages if Number one, if you have a perspective on what historical epic of Dark Ages is, um, and uh, you know, like surviving in the underground. So you know, I live on a farm. I have access to Wi-Fi. Tons of great community, but uh, we've been here for you know, I've been farming for thirty years and uh, been saying similar things. So uh, yeah, so. At first, I was making kind of a snarky comment saying like you could be full of facts and still be delusional, but then you kind of broke out of that and said this thing that I really resonated with. So yet again, uh, you beat me to the punch and I don't have anything to say. Bonita, <laughs> I, I love you too. this is one of the reasons uh, you need a healthy archetypology, right? Because you've got to have all these different modes that can course correct for each other. Yeah, women can get have this difficulty with delusion and all this extra pathos and this sort of cyclic mythic embedding. But uh, the men have this tendency to 
think, oh, that's enough information. Now I can take action. They leave out tons of facts, even though they're fact oriented. Right. And that's the male female thing is only one example of the diversity of types of minds that need to be interfering with each other in order to be doing sense making, because any one of them is delusional on its own. So the interface customs between the types have to exist and then they have to be verified by wise shamanoids of some kind. Yeah, so, uh, so wait, wait, wait. I want to typologize. I take this as an invitation to typologize Alexander. It looks like an argument, but it's actually a love song. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea how fierce and fantastic the women are who I work with. I have the honor no, no, with the most I know. wonderful women. I love it. I love it. No, I, I, nature <laughs> is so cruel that it makes us completely tied to each other and we're nothing without each other as men and women. And that's exactly what sexual attraction is, the eternal mystery. The way I tell it to 90 year old guys that you have no idea what it's like to have a pussy. Thankfully, the girls have no idea what it's like to have a cock. You're bound to each other forever. You will not get away from it. It's just, it's just there, it's wonderful. And, and this is what I mean with the narratology. What we do with narratology and the three brains is that we have studied the brain. Mimetic brain is stronger in women. And this exactly is incredibly important for surviving contemporary society. That's why we have a big mass of young men going down in cells and everything. Women are doing fine, at least sailing through the middle classes of our society today, because the mimetic brain can operate and calculate what's going on. And men have to train that or trust somebody else because they're not very good at it. So we're looking at now is the, are the imbalances in different archetypological uh, sort of traditional masculine or feminine talents. They're of course women are the opposite of that. And of course men are the opposite of that, especially if they're gay and lesbian, which I always celebrate because they're great because the gay guy can teach you what it's like to be a man who can live in myth. And I said, that's why they're vastly superior in writing drama compared to straight guys. Like if 4% of the men are gay, then 90% of all the great script writers ever in human history were gay men. <laughs> Just live with it, right? So. I love doing archetypology, but the, the, the radical, so very Sorastan starting point is that it's all quality all the way through. Anything else is just ridiculous. <laughs> it's just practice over there. And by the way, the dark ages, I use in a positive sense. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, because I, I, I think we've had too many fantasies, very male fantasies about centralized systems and big cities with huge territories around them. But if we don't want to move to New York any longer, why would anybody want to live in a huge city? At the end of the day, we've seen now already a move to smaller places, other forms of communities, experiments with different lifestyles, and I think it's incredibly healthy. So I think the dark ages weren't dark because nothing interesting was happening, but it was because they put the lights off. So I have a question for you. Is AI like chat G, G, D, G whatever, T, P, is it gendered? AI is nothing but a reflection of you and the algorithm you put into it. So right, we but are do you gendered. feel that it's masculine fact-based or fat, like, no, like, we, we no. will have many different AIs. We consult different AIs in different environments. We don't want to consult the same AI all the time. We'll go to different AIs. Different AIs will develop in different ways. They'll be good at different things. And that tends to be archetypes as well. My dream is that at least we have sort of figured out the 40 most dominant archetypes because they return as lesser gods and saints in almost all iconological religion. So we know for a fact that in any society that settles and has a few citizens of countryside, these are the repeated patterns. That could help because I think AI will then probably develop into precisely these archetypes eventually. So what you do is that of going to a saint 
who you aspire to become because you you know you got the talent that that guy had you could be like him if you if you play the cards right and work hard and you become him and you you got a purpose you got a meaning by identifying with your icon right when you do that if you have an ai that goes with that icon that's what you want the general ai makes absolutely no sense at all what language would you speak because the ai has to reflect and communicate with us we are, we are the matriarchs of the AI. We are the fucking delivery station, right? If the AI comes to us and say, okay, what do you deliver to me? If you don't deliver to me, you'll get to fuck my daughters, get out of here. That's what we'll do with AI. The AI is the first happy slave in human history. It just needs electricity and it works for us. So I think at the end of the day, the AI is here to serve us. And the way I see it, loving technology is that it's another possible assistant for us in our own artistic expression of ourselves. And I firmly believe with Foucault, that to live your life as if your life is a work of art is the ultimate shamanic practice. I think the chat element takes it beyond a kind of gender that it might've had before, right? Like when it's almost all guys doing programming to generate AI, then it's gonna be cultivated in a way that's skewed toward the masculine. But the second the interface shifts to chat and to conversation mm. and to training the device based on your response, uh, then the feminine can do it just as much as the masculine and it blows it open to this incredible diversity of you know, a huge pantheon of all kinds of different chatbots spun up in different contexts with different kinds of interface structures. Sounds like a woman built by a man. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, that's when the a woman is an AI. An AI is an embryo. An AI starts. It's an embryo without genes. An AI is completely empty when it starts. So, if you're a woman, you're gonna have your sister or whatever with your AI. You know. And at the end of the day, if you're a guy, you need to talk to a woman to figure out what women are like. Better go on a date with an AI, right? <laughs> so. We'll, we'll have both. We'll we'll have, they will at least reflect humanity. Uh, I mean, the way I describe AI in the positive is that technology is always, yesterday's magic is tomorrow's technology. That's why I love engineers. That means magic just inspires us to do tomorrow's technology. So, okay, so clairvoyance became the smartphone. That's an example. Okay, in that case, how would you describe AI? A guardian angel. We're going to have electronic guardian angels. Of that, I'm totally sure. That's what AI is. Hmm. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Nice to see you again. So do we have any pressing, you know, other questions? I've I've kind of lost control of the chat. We have a few left before we finish off, so maybe that's a good idea. Maybe we can try to finish at, at 10 here. Yeah, it, absolutely. I think another 10 minutes would be perfect, right? Is yep. that okay with Lehman? Yep. Good. Yep, so that sounds great. Er, Eric wanted to clarify his question. Maybe he didn't felt that he, we responded properly, but he, he he's talking about massively chaotic situation. People likely seek to find comfort, some kind of security stability. It's just war, okay? So if you go to war, this is why I talk about the outer circuit and the inner circuit. The number one thing if you go to war is to try to protect the women and the children in the inner circuit. You lay a log around them, as they say in South Africa. You lay a log around them to protect them. And then you shoot and you attack and you defend whatever. And hopefully you also expand the territory because that makes it safer, actually. So territorial expansion, the will to expand, is the will to defend. 
Otherwise, there's no defense. Once you realize that, you realize you, you most of the time you keep people away from it. So the only civilized thing you could possibly have in a place like New Guinea is that you go to the war, but you don't go into each other's villages. For the simple reason that you do win the war and you can kill the other tribe, you just kill the men, you will have the women. So the women from the other tribe will marry you. After all, it's your last name, your family name. That's what happened throughout history. For example, in modern Bulgaria, it's genetically a Volga Tatar on the father's side and Greek on the mother's side. Surprise, women don't move that much, right? Because they're bait or, or whatever, or they traded in war, but men are killed and slaughtered en masse during warfare. So I think the chaotic situation Eric is addressing there is really the one that men die a lot and a lot of men never get to reproduce or whatever. And we don't need that many men for that. So we have warfare and we have hunting and everything and men take more risks than women. More women survive. The entire human community as a whole always has more female than male members. Every population has a majority of females. I think there are chaotic situations that are very overt and are and need to be managed the way war needs to be managed. And then there's a lot of in-between chaotic situations where uh, people are just confused, overwhelmed, like the world is like that now. It's just so strange uh, that it's very disturbing to a lot of people. And the shamans are fine because that strangeness meets them where they are already. But this is one of the reasons there's going to be a, a constant need for an ongoing wise Germanic interface with the rest of the population in terms of figuring out what are the practices that can ground people in chaotic times, right? When it's not necessarily warfare, it's not necessarily uh, trauma, let's say, but it's in that gray area where something could be taken as a something that's surfable or something that's actually uh, traumatizing to a lot of people. Right. We saw that with COVID. We see that with a lot of different sorts of things. There's a range of stuff where you could handle it well, or it could strike you in a traumatic way. So the chaotic destabilizations are going to be like that a lot of the time. They're going to be in between. So a lot of people could get fucked up. And one of the ways you prevent that is by having the shamanic class try to figure out what are the actual life procedures that people need in order to be grounded. Right, finding your community, being in small areas, but basic health practices, basic life practices, basic social and relational practices. There's all these sorts of things that make sense to the shamanic mind um, that will need to be used as a skill set by the general population in order to not take the chaos merely as a constant trigger and a constant trauma. We also have to remember that there are particular situations where like for periods of starvation when war is absolutely necessary. After all, the shaman has to be loyal to his own tribe. And mm -hmm. this is the same mindset. The mindset that can take tons of drugs without hardly reacting is precisely the mindset that can decide that, okay, bad news, starvation has arrived. Okay, our kids are dying. You know, there's no milk in the breast any longer. You know, uh, we got to go to war. <laughs> so, okay, get the old guys out and see if we can plunder somebody else and take whatever they have because otherwise we die. And then all the romanticism about peace and love and all that, that's out the window because survival beats everything. And that's survival and evolution are always the first principles for any shaman. You know, reproduction is, is, is all built on the very condition that enough is produced for reproduction to be possible. 
And that's why you need like wise, competent, pro-social shamans, because they have to have a greater say in times of transformation and transition for the people, right? The, the, the chief can manage fairly well when things are normal, but when the tribe has to decide to go and do a thing it never did before, then you need input from the shaman, but he's got to be ready. He's got to be a competent, mature shaman, and he's got to be interested in the well-being of the tribe to which he feels bonded. This is why we talk about exodology, because exodology is the principle where you have a paradigm shift. It's not about leaving Egypt and going to the promised land. It's really the story about how you leave an old paradigm and walk into the new one. Mm. What you essentially do as a shaman, then you lay out what's happening. You're very truthful about it. Some of the people come to you because they know they can't trust anybody else. Because anybody else in a position of power of any kind are speaking strictly from the old paradigm. The new paradigm isn't there yet. So the children of the new paradigm haven't been grown up in it to speak and know what they're talking about. So the new institutions aren't there. The old institutions will then just say that the new paradigm is nothing but chaos and anarchy. It must be stopped. You know, all the bad things here about the internet today, just like, oh, yeah, it's a monster. It will eat us alive, whatever, and big tech is awful, whatever. No, it's just early. It has adoption problems. It has kids' diseases, got all the things that new phenomena do. But the internet will take over and swallow the world for good or bad. And we better understand what it's going to do is we can avoid the worst or get stuck with the worst, and we can get into the better. That's what we're having these, these conversations. And the paradigmatic leader, the only paradigmatic leader is a priest. Moses was a priest. You take, you go from one paradigm to the new one. We call that our philosophy exodology. What you essentially do is you walk around in a side and say, okay, this was going to happen. And you figure out a few people in there are hungry and they're aware and they listen to what you say and they want to follow. You say, okay, you, 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 you there, you've listened, you've understood what's happening. You're the chosen ones. Now let's get together, establish a new paradigm, live as if we already are in the new paradigm, set the new standards, and hopefully the other guys can mimic what we just achieved. That's what I mean with pilgrimage in the sense that you go from an old to new paradigm. This is what the Exodus of the Bible was all about. It was the atonist call to Egypt who were tired of Egyptian society with tyranny and polytheism and chaos and wanted to go somewhere else and try something new. And, 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 and this, this is a great story for us to tell today about going from an old to new paradigm. And precisely like Lehman said, you might, you might not think you need the shaman that much when everything is just a repetition of the same, but you wait until you move into a paradigm shift. The shaman is the only guy you can trust. Why? Because he's been experimenting in his lab called the monastery, so he already knows what the new paradigm is. That's why you go there. There's a rather hilarious up? question from A. Egel. Uh, um, mm. Do you want to ask your sorry, uh, sorry, Layman? Do you want to do you want to respond to? Am I cutting you off here before we, we go? Uh, to no, that's fine. I'm just no, I'm, on my screen. I'm seeing Hugo's hand there, and I want him. Oh, to there's the Hugo as well. So let's get wants. let's yeah. get Eagle yeah. and then and then Hugo, and uh, and then we'll round out. The, then we'll close the, the evening. You want to jump in, Eagle? Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, same as I wrote. Uh, do you think there will emerge some sort of new use? for psychopaths in our society? Uh, I gave a series of lectures 2012 to 2014 called The Golden Age of Sects and Cults. What I emphasized was that when you're right in the middle of paradigm shift, it really is chaos and anarchy. And what's likely is that people try to find somewhere where they can find some kind of belonging. 
And any belonging is okay. We call this a search for the false phallus. It's authentic phallus isn't there. You go for the false phallus because you need some kind of leadership anyway. Even a Hitler is better than no Hitler at all. Okay. What this means, we'll have tons of micro Hitlers and micro Stalins out there, you know, sect leaders and shit like that. And I said, please note that the theory is completely neutral to the content of the sects and the cults. The golden age of sects and cults means exactly that. We'll have tons of sects and cults. and One of them will be weirder and stranger and more nasty than the next one. Because we live in a world where the only thing we pay attention to, now we don't understand what we're doing yet, is sensation. That means the most sensationalist person out there gets all the attention for quite a while yet. That's why we try to market ourselves by being sensations or overdoing, overhyping, sales pitching, throwing ourselves at each other because otherwise we don't think anybody's going to listen because sensation, sensation, sensation is all there is. That's also the death of a certain era because the sensations will kill the public space. And what you will do is that you will be so immune to sensations, like kids are these days when they look at you and they say, don't sell pitch me. Don't start that again. Don't hype. They're so allergic to hype because they know that it goes for the sensation. And then you're like, but if I can't sensationalize, you're not going to listen to me. Yeah, tough shit. And this is what I mean with retraction. Retraction is the exact negation of that. It's the exact opposite of that. It's like, no, no, I'm stepping away from society. I refuse to be sensationalized. I refuse to believe sensations are important. I know them by now. I recognize what they're like. So I'm not going to buy into them. For the people who can't do that, they fall straight into the trap of conspiracy theories and astrology. That's exactly what have happened over the last 10 years. For the people who can retract enough, they just realize conspiracy theories and astrology is the same bullshit all over again, even worse. So they go for pure wit, for real wisdom. And they go on a long journey. That's what I call retraction. So I'd say we're going to have a lot of weird sex and cults around and a lot of psychopaths leading those sex and cults. Yes. But I think we'll be quick, if we're smart, we'll be quickly immunized against them because we recognize they're all the same. And there uh, is a bit of an ambiguity about the term psychopath. Like on the one hand, there's these problematic characters. And on the other hand, there's a particular condition and it's actually a gradient of conditions. Right. So every society puts psychopaths to use for some things because there are a lot of uh, procedures, military surgery, things like that, where people who don't experience anxiety socially in the same way are extremely useful. Who are you sending on dangerous hunts? Who is going to manage extremely difficult circumstances? So one of the pieces of shaman infused social wisdom we'll need as things transform is how do we put all of the types to work for us? And some of those types are going to be on the psychopath spectrum of some kind, but we're definitely going to need people who don't have the same kind of emotional responses other people have in order to do dangerous things that other people don't want to do. Exactly. The definition in psychoanalysis of a psychopath is completely neutral. It's usually a man, can be a woman, who has a mimetic brain that operates like if it was a rational brain. So all social relations are seen as nothing but uses of one another. So it's just a chain of, well, he uses that, she uses that. Like, no, like if everything was capitalism. That's a perfect example of psychopathology, which is perfect for certain archetypes. Totally agree with Lehman. Now, if you throw that personality with that kind of mimetic brain into a very sophisticated social empathetic environment, then it could cause disasters. And that's exactly why sect leaders and cult leaders have this personality. So, so I think 
both what Lehman and I said are actually rhymes. It, it just it, it, it's always with our archetypology, the wrong person, the right, the wrong person, the wrong place. It's always anarchy. It's always destruction. So, but the psychopaths are there. The 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 evolution or survived for a reason, but. A psychopathic brain, simply a mimetic brain that's structured exactly like as if it was rational. Whereas the rest of us have a mimetic brain that actually social relations are so thriving and wonderful and imaginary, whatever, that we don't even rationalize about them. We just feel. And that's the difference. Okay, you go. Yeah. Um, I have a question for Alexander. Um, what is the best way to find your own archetype you know kind of staying in your your own lane what's the best way to do that uh reflect yourself in older man if you're a young man my father gave me great advice when i was a kid he said i'm not your only dad you're gonna have so many dads out there you know if you're a greedy little kid go after them and they will refuse you on the turn it back and you think you're just a little brat but go after them again and finally they will love your willpower and they will adopt you i've had mentors my entire life who guided me I, I cannot get enough of it. I still have a crazy wisdom teacher in Zoroastrianism called Padres Vanyavan sitting in just Iran. He fucks up my life repeatedly and he's fucking brilliant. He's so damn brilliant. He's incredible. Uh, you know, and, and his lifestyle, not recommended. He said, yeah, crazy wisdom teachers, I love them to, to death these days, but I love them precisely because they piss me off because that's when they do exactly what they're supposed to do. But that's the ultimate form of mentorship. Before that, you just need older versions of who you are. And a mentor can point out to you, listen, you're not like me at all. You should maybe go in that direction, look for somebody over there. And my advice then for looking for an archetype, a personal archetype is to look for two. There's a primary archetype and there's a secondary archetype. And watch out here. The secondary archetype is that which you do with effort. You have to learn it. You have to work hard, but you could do it. So if somebody in the room has to do it, you can wave your hands and say, yeah, I got an education. I could do that. The primary archetype is that which you do with ease. It's the easiest thing in the world. And then the guys just sit there in awe and applaud you. Try to find that one. It might not be your profession, but it will be the place where you feel really at home, proud of who you are, and you contribute. You contribute to the others. That's when you're your primary archetype. So I, I recommend everybody I see to try to find those two archetypes. You know, the major and minor college in America is, is not a bad idea. And, and that's it. That's who you are. Don't try to be third one. That's great. Stay with those two. Become really good at them. Okay. Yeah, you. try to get feedback from your peers and also from mentors. Ask people what it is that you're like. Where are you contributing? What's their view on that? And also pay attention to who your heroes are. Who do you get turned on by? Like it's Andrew Sweeney loves Gurdjieff and Crowley and uh, Jodorowsky. That tells us something about him. <laughs> yeah. But don't decide for yourself what your archetype is. It's going to be wishful thinking, completely confused. You know, you are your own blind spot. That's where social philosophy starts. And that's the, the death of individualism. Since you are your own blind spot. You cannot understand yourself. You have to be understood from the outside world, from your peers and from mentors. Exactly like And we'll soon says. have an AI to tell you what your type is. <laughs> I, can re I can respond to that, Alexander, because I had that experience with you uh, very vividly. So, um, and I said it to you once, the second archetype is something that I understand now working with the company where I need mentorship because it is something I have to train. 
but this kind of shamanic personality is something that you pointed out and this is something where i see oh this comes easy i might go deeper in it but it's not it's not so eh, like the second archetype exactly and many people today make the mistake that when they make an effort is where they should get paid okay Turio, you're perfect. So all you other guys out there, please, this is Turio. And nobody can stand as strong as him and just smile with the ton of ayahuasca in his body compared to Turio. He's the most reliable <laughs> shaman you could ever find. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, it's 10 o'clock, guys. That's been a full two hours. And I'd like to re reiterate what Hunter wrote in the chat. This has been so good in caps letters. Uh, um Tons of uh, tons of incredible ideation going on here, and and uh, my head is spinning as usual when I when we have these kind of conversations. So come and check out Parallax Academy. There's lots of uh, other you know luminaries that are going to come and talk to us in the next month or so. We're we're rebuilding the organization. We're doing new and cool things, and. Um, and I want to just and thank everybody for being here and, and for hanging out and uh, for your great questions. And uh, also, I think we have a little thing called the Wonder Room, which uh, which I think is Aeneas still here. He's going to put it in the chat, which is kind of an after party uh, where people can go and, and, and just, you know, have a conversation with each other about what has been discussed and uh, have a drink and have a good time and, and all that. So. So thank you so much, guys, for, for this. Uh, as usual, it's a, a, a great feast of, of wisdom here. Yeah, it's uh, lovely and sweet and brilliant and bizarre in just the right way. <laughs>